Greetings again, everyone. For those of you along the tape program who will be hearing, I can announce now that we are past the $1 million mark of potential commitments in response to our letter talking about the bond issue to build our new office building beginning hopefully on about July 1st. Uh, we haven't set that date yet because, of course, until all of the paperwork is done and the actual prospectus has been mailed out to everyone and they have returned their investment and we have the sinking fund established and all the bank papers completed and then the Tyler building systems come out here on the grounds, uh, we'll begin. But hopefully sometime after the summer camp is over, we'll have a groundbreaking and we're really looking forward to that because we've been, especially, I'm sure, uh, Rosie and uh, all of Ian's department and, of course, our little print shop and the bulk mailing department, a lot of other areas where they're just crowded and have virtually no space to turn around, are going to be looking very much forward to that new office building. We'll still appreciate your prayers on either sending the right buyer uh, to purchase the present office building or, failing that, we're going to try to lease it and hopefully if we can lease it out for, you know, even if it's close to what we have to uh, amortize against what is owed against the building, well, that'll still be that much ahead. I don't know of any other announcements I can make uh, for the tape program at this time. Last week, I sounded off a little bit about the riots. And probably when you see the telecast tomorrow, if you do, you will understand why I'm probably going to receive several death threats in the coming week. Uh, I told it like it is. People don't like to hear the truth. They don't like to hear the cause of riots. They don't like to hear what ought to be done about it. I was telling my wife this morning that if I were to preach everything I know about the Word of God with regard to marital relations and the family, with regard to homosexuality, with regard to crime, if I were to preach all the things I know will be put in place in the millennium during the kingdom of God, and if I were to say that is the way it ought to be today, I could get, you know, many death threats and bomb calls and so on every week. But I am not commissioned to do that. I am commissioned to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the gospel of the kingdom of God is the good news of the coming government or the rule of the ruling family of God on this earth. And as such, there is a great deal of the Bible, which is history, a great deal of the Bible that is going to be imposed upon people. We see God's laws as they were applied under a theocracy during the Mosaic period, that in the millennium things are going to be very different. I'm going to touch on that just a little bit today, because I want to deal with just one aspect of the recent violence and crime in the United States, but talk about all crime the tidal wave of crime that has been inundating society for these last many, many decades in this country that has really grown out of all proportion and beyond all bonds of reason of reasonable understanding since the 1950s. The very first television program I ever made in 1955, I spoke out against juvenile delinquency and violence, against youngsters who were murdering or even burning old men with lighter fluid. I spoke out against repeated stabbings of a woman in a parking lot where people peered out the upstairs windows and heard this lady in Brooklyn, New York, screaming for help, and not a one of them would come to her aid. Think of how long ago that was. I remember the incredible uniform crime statistics, as they're called from the FBI during that day, of all the various categories of crime, of arson, burglary, auto theft, rape, muggings, and so on and how alarmed we were about the increase in crime. If you were to go back and look at those statistics, they would look like almost nothing, just the tiniest little percentage of the crime statistics today. We have seen as a result of the alleged police brutality, and I believe it was brutality, and I believe that was a wrong verdict, and I believe that for all that the, the uh, jury saw of the tape, that we didn't get to see, but just saw the last few seconds of it, that if there was so much on that tape that preceded the few seconds we saw that so swayed a jury that this morning a commentator on CNN said, or a person being interviewed said, any jury anywhere in this entire country who had seen that whole tape the way we did would have come up with the same verdict. Now, I really don't believe that because I don't know what could have been on that tape to have made me agree that what was on the final seconds of that tape was in any manner, shape, or form justified. 
But if that man says that is true, why didn't the media show it to us? Why didn't they show it to all of these people who rioted the minute they heard of that incredible verdict? Well, time and again I've mentioned that the very building block of society is the family. And I want to talk about the family today. I want to talk about the cause of crime. Our nation deals with the effect. We need more prisons. We already have a labyrinthal, convoluted justice system, so-called criminal justice system. It doesn't work. It does not rehabilitate. The average criminal knows that he's got about a 5% chance of doing any time if he commits a violent crime. The average amount of time spent in jail is something like eight and a half days for a felony. The average criminal is let out with only a fraction of the time served. I've given you the statistics before. If I had the proverbial computer print out here, the paper I could show you, let's say that this piece of paper represents all crime. I tear it in half. That's the crime it is reported. I take a little cube down in the corner of that half, and I say that's the, kind of, that's the amount of crime that is app actually apprehended. Now, we blow that up, and that becomes our new 100%. And we go down another little bitty cube, about 5 or 10%. That's the amount that is convicted. We blow that up and we think about plea bargaining and probation and all the rest of it. And we say, that's the amount of them that go to jail. And by the time we're through with all of this, my original page, we've got a little black dot down in this corner representing the people that ever pay any kind of a penalty for the crime they commit in this country. And the statistics are truly enormous. I said something last week I want to repeat briefly. I do believe that this is true. I do not believe a single member of the Church of God International rioted in Los Angeles. Isn't that a shocking statement? Boy, aren't we good? Aren't we righteous? Aren't we wonderful? Aren't we good uh, uh, wasps and so on, good old upstanding white Americans? Well, we have a lot of blacks in the Church of God. A lot of blacks. Black ministers have whole black churches in black nations down in Jamaica and overseas. So, no, I'm not talking from that standpoint. I do not believe that a single member of the, of the Worldwide Church of God in the greater Los Angeles area was out there burning buildings and killing people. But then I don't believe a single Mormon was doing it either. And I don't believe a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was doing it either. And I don't believe good Baptists were doing it either. Do you? Does anybody believe that the people out on those streets murdering, torching buildings, looting, carrying off gleefully VCRs and TV sets were the product of a religious home? I don't think so. I don't think so. Let me state axiomatically something that is utterly beyond the understanding of all of mainstream fundamentalist religion. Almighty God is a family of persons. He reveals himself as Father and Son. He reveals himself in the very first word, in the beginning, God, and the word is Elohim, and that means more than one, like group or church, it means more than one, created. We know the member of the Godhead who did the creating later on is called the son of a father. That is not an invention of a theologian to try to take the human family and then to apply human relationships by analogy to God. It is exactly the other way around. It is taking what is, what exists, the creating family of a father and a son, and applying that relationship to his prototype, his own handiwork, his creation, because that creating, ruling family in heaven above is reproducing after his own kind. Now, I just said something that Methodists don't know, Catholics don't know, Baptists don't know, Seventh-day Adventists don't know, and millions of people don't know. God is a family, and God is reproducing after the God kind. They just don't know that. It is beyond their theology. We can read the scriptures in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image. Male and female created he them. And God beheld everything that he created, and behold, it was very good. Now, we know that the male and the female are exactly, perfectly answerable to, fitting, compatible to, complementary of each other. God said, it is not good that man should dwell alone. I will make an help fitting for him. And we read of how God took woman, which merely means Isha, from Ish, 
man from man, isha from ish, because they were the same flesh, using that part of the man that is closest to his heart, if you want to get sentimental by analogy, taking a rib, making a perfectly flawless human female form, and presenting that beautiful woman without a stitch of clothing on, because they had the world's private, the biggest private bedroom in history, uh, in the Garden of Eden, and Adam had to be very impressed. I think Eve was equally impressed. There were the two of them, and God said it is not good that man should dwell alone. Man should leave his father and his mother and should cleave unto his wife. I was reading a book in my backyard this morning. Maybe sometime I can do an article or two about it or bring segments of it and tell you a little bit more about it, but a woman had done a very laudable job of going through the hundreds of women mentioned in the Bible, good and bad and indifferent, whatever is known about them. And she has an entire book about the women of the Bible with a thick bibliography and a complete uh, listing of all of them alphabetically. And it doesn't matter whether they're the more famous women like Rebecca or uh, Sarah or Mary or Mary Magdalene or some of these women of the Old and the New Testament, even women of whom you've probably rarely ever heard or just read in passing. Every one of them is in there. And there's an interesting point that she brings out that I hadn't really zeroed in on before, but when you read the account of the resurrection and how Mary Magdalene entered into the tomb, and even though the others had left, and she was curious, and when she went back and she saw the angels sitting, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus had lain, for the first time a heavenly messenger speaks to a human being, and the first word he says is, woman. Fascinating thought. And she makes a great deal about that, about the kind of a woman Mary Magdalene must have been because of the fact that she had had eight personalities seven demons and her own, and that Christ had relieved the burden of demon possession, cast out demons from that woman, and that from that time on she was a traveling companion, she was a close companion with Christ's mother, with uh, the mother of James and John, with the other women who accompanied with them. There were several of them that traveled around and took care of their baggage and their food, and I bring that out in the Real Jesus book. So I think it is interesting that the very first message that came back after Christ was risen from the dead was the word woman. And when the messenger spoke to Mary Magdalene that he was not there, and then when Christ himself spoke to her and said, Mary, and she said, Rabboni, and he said, Touch me not, I have not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. So the first act at the end of the creation week prior to that first Sabbath was to create woman answering perfectly, compatible, complementary to man. Now, the Bible is not viewed by most religions as a sort of a handbook of knowledge and information we could not otherwise discover by any method or mode. We can in understand all sorts of things uh, that the Bible doesn't touch upon, that the Bible is not intended to convey to us, because man has been given a mind, and he has been given the ability to accumulate knowledge and evaluate it and come to certain conclusions and decisions. But the Bible is the handbook from the manufacturer. It's the handbook that came from the factory that shows how to fix it when it's broke, how it is supposed to function, how it's supposed to work, what its various parts are, how it functions better, how to make it function for a long time without any kind of interruption and so on. Just like any good handbook from a manufacturer, whether you're talking about a Singer sewing machine or a leading-edge computer. And the Bible is God's word to man about what we are. Do you know that from the twelfth chapter of the book of Exodus, the Bible could in, be entitled in one way, the story of one man's family, because it begins with the story of Abraham. And the whole story of salvation is the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the calling of Israel out of Egypt at the time of the Passover, God's messengers that were sent to his own special people, and of course then the scepter that was never to depart from Judah and the line of kings that were to come out of the seed of Israel and the entire story of salvation. And in Galatians 3.29, to all of the Gentile races, if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise because the promises were given to Abraham. And because Abraham was a man 
married to a fabulous woman named Sarah, a family man to whom God appeared on several occasions. And because he obeyed God, no matter what the cost, his faith, his commitment, his loyalty to God was utterly without question. And God proved that by testing him to the breaking point. He told him to sacrifice his own son. And in so doing, Abraham becomes a shadowy type of God the Father, willing to sacrifice Christ. And, of course, we know that he provides a goat in a thicket instead. And he said, Now I know that you will do exactly as I tell you. And because of Abraham's faith, we breathe, draw breath, and experience life today. There have been many occasions where seed of Abraham, wicked King Manasseh, and many before him and many after him have come along and tried God's patience to the place God would have annihilated them all. It happened in the wilderness at Meribah. It happened time and again when Moses was so beside himself with the murmuring and the rebelliousness of the Israelites that God wanted to simply wipe them out and destroy them. And he proposed to do so and start all over again with Moses. And Moses pled with God in the same way that other patriarchs and prophets did, as David himself did in some of the songs, psalms when he would say, How long, O eternal, do you not hear my cry? And how they would argue with God in the sense of, Let not the heathen say, Where is their God? Why should the heathen rejoice? Would you do it for your name's sake, even if you don't do it just to satisfy our needs? And they would appeal or plead with God. And so Moses, in a very repentant, broken-hearted way, caused God to say that he repented himself, he changed his mind, he was not going to destroy all of Israel. The family consisting of father and mother and children is the fundamental unit of all of society, no matter which society it is of which we speak today. Now, coming down to the very modern times in the United States of America, from the day that I was a youngster growing up, and the assault that had begun on the family by about World War I, when we were coming out of the swinging of the pendulum from the puritanical concept, where divorce was a stigma, where no man who had been divorced could ever expect to get into high public office, where morals were supposed to be very high, where when my mother was a young lady, they wore clothing all the way to the wrist and all the way to the ankles, and I have pictures of my mother in a bathing suit at the beach on the Great Lake up there in Chicago, Lake Michigan. And she's sitting there in the sand, and she has a black, frilly uh, suit on all the way to her ankles. It may have come just to the knee, I forget, but it has big, frilly things all over it. She had a big bonnet, and all the other ladies on the beach had the same thing. Now, a lot of people today think that was terrible. That's just bad. That is so old-fashioned, we just get the biggest kick out of that, that women would cover themselves and they would be so decorous and so modest that they would not want to show a great deal of flesh out in public. So gradually we had from the puritanical to the libertine. We had from discipline to nihilism. We had the swinging of the pendulum from one extreme to the other. And we've been in the midst now for some time, and we see its fruits all around us, and that's double meaning, I suppose, the so-called sexual revolution. What are its fruits? Another one of my very early television and radio programs was on the pattern of divorce in the United States. And at that time, I was talking about how we were experiencing divorce at the rate nearing 20% of marriages. Now, in the inner urban areas, it is more than 50%. In some areas, divorces outstrip new marriage licenses. Half of all the teenage marriages where both are in their teens, are as a result of a premarital pregnancy. Half of all teenage marriages are broken by divorce in the first five years. The millions, and I looked up the other day for an article I was working on, a booklet, the millions of young children who are now 14 to 19 who are the result of broken homes are just astronomical when you get all the statistics, and that is available in a Common Everyday Almanac, by the way. You can get all the divorce statistics there. You can see exactly what is the makeup of the American family. When I was a boy, there were comic strips that assaulted the home and the family, like Dagwood Bumstead, meaning steady bum, you know, a bum all of his life, Dagwood Bumstead, and Blondie. And it was Maggie and Jig. You know, the husband was the couch potato. 
He was the indolent dolt. He was the absolute idiot. He was the Archie Bunker. But the crisp, efficient, brilliant, intelligent, well-educated driving force of the family was Little Miss Housewife, the hard-working mom. And about the time that I read a book by Philip Wiley with a chapter entitled Mom, which sort of gave me a little bit of additional insight into the American institution of momism, I became finally able to realize why most athletes, six foot nine, weigh 260 pounds, able to jam a basketball through a hoop with barely a skip and a hop, uh, when they are put in front of the camera, are reduced to quivering jelly and say, Hi, Mom! Not a one of them ever says, Hi, Dad! You know, they all say, Hi, Mom! Now, when you look at the entire background of entertainment, of art, of literature, of how the law has been watered down to practically encourage divorce, make it very, very easy for people, 50% property settlements in California and in Texas and so on. And then you look what the Bible says about divorce, you can come to understand a little bit of what is happening. I'm going to turn to the third chapter of the book of Isaiah. I had a little taste of this just today. I was watching the news on CNN, and along came at the end of the health week part of it, a fashion show. So my wife and I were for just a few seconds, until I got so sick in my stomach I had to turn it off, treated to some women who looked exactly like these women in this chapter of Isaiah are described. Isaiah, the third chapter, and beginning in verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors. Now, that deserves a little bit of comment. I mentioned that my very first program was against juvenile delinquency. That has grown so much worse today that it is incredible. Within a few weeks, I have seen a documentary on television interviewing youngsters. It was young, one young girl that I think was in the 10th or 11th grade. Well, they were starting movements in school to allow children all the way into grade school at about the level of the 6th grade to have voluntary AIDS testing without parental knowledge or consent. Others, from a moral standpoint, were arguing parents must be consulted, parents ought to know. The kids were saying no, because if you have to tell mom and dad, it'll mean you don't have the courage to go get the test. What I'm here to say is, isn't it unbelievable that as they trotted out their statistics about the percentages of little boys and girls who are, quote, sexually active, end quote, meaning committing adultery, or rather fornication, sodomy, bestiality, homosexuality, whatever, at some early age, uh, it was incredible that, that they want these tests to reach all the way down into grade school. I remember when I went to school, there were 1,200 kids, three grades. We went to a junior high school up in Eugene, Oregon, 7, 8, and 9, and my high school had 1,200 kids. Just about 400 per class. That's a pretty big school, pretty good-sized school. I remember in the three years of going to high school that there was one girl that became pregnant and had to drop out of school. That was a huge, embarrassing tragedy. The kids talked about nothing else. Her name was Mud. Her life was wrecked. Her reputation was ruined, and I know exactly, I can see the little girl, I remember exactly who she was, she was a pretty cute little girl. I thought she was a cute little girl, until I learned that she'd already gotten herself pregnant, and then I, she wasn't cute to me anymore, because we had different values. This was during the war years. The United States had enemies to fight, and we were pulling together. We were not fragmenting apart. It's like I've said to the Jews many a time that, if they didn't have the Arabs threatening them from without, there would be no society tearing themselves apart from within any more viciously than a lot of the Jews because of all the fractious religious organizations over there. Same thing is true of the Arabs. They can't get along either. But oftentimes an enemy outside will cause people within who otherwise might beat each other's throats to just abandon their internecine difficulties and say the enemy of my enemy is my friend or whatever, and they will begin to group together and do something about it. As for my people, children are their oppressors. And if you saw the videotape, you saw that most of those who were doing the looting and uh, pillaging and burning and rioting and beating and killing and so on were youngsters. There weren't that many middle-aged or elderly people out there. And women rule over them. Now I can talk about the fact that the last prime minister for many, many years of Great Britain was a woman. I can talk about the fact that I think that it's quite likely that before my 
death or the second coming of Christ, whichever comes first. We may have a woman for the President of the United States. I could also comment that it was the women of the United States who put Jacqueline in the White House, and Jack went along for the ride. And that's absolutely true statistically. It is the women of the United States who will elect the next president because they outnumber male voters, and by and large, they tend to be more active. They tend to care more. They tend to get out and try to do something about it. They tend to really make their voice heard. And a lot of the couch potatoes are lying around doing nothing about it one way or the other. O oh, my people, they which lead thee. Now, back then it was the king. We live in a different society. So today it is the president and the vice president and the cabinet and the democratic congress and state governments and officials. But it's also the Supreme Court. And from the days of the Warren Court, which was ultra-libertine, and which made some of the most deadly decisions that have actually set the pattern for much that has gone on in our country since. And, of course, it is all the judiciary and legislative, as well as any given administrative body that comes along that, that really does not have the power to change that which has been put in place by previous incumbent governments, where the die was cast maybe three or four administrations previously. But it also is laying the, the blame at the door of the clergy because those responsible for preaching and teaching moral standards are in the clergy. It also lays a great deal of the responsibility at the door of the school. Now, I could talk for days on the school system. I could talk about that infamous strike where the teachers of Texas couldn't stand the idea that teachers were going to be given a test because many of them are quasi-literate. When I hear a teacher teaching English say, well, I don't know about that guy who don't know uh, about nothing and uses double negatives and ridiculous language and so on. And I, I play golf with a fellow who's a high school English teacher, and he doesn't even know how to talk. And I'm thinking, these kids are coming out of school mimicking this teacher, and they can't read, and they can't talk, and they can't write. And the illiteracy rates in the United States, by the way, are infinitely higher today than they were when I got out of high school in 1947. I forget what it is. It's not half, is it? But it's some astronomical number of American people that can't really read and write. And there are an awful lot of people who can't get a job in the shipping department of some warehouse because they can't even read when it says right side up on a shipping carton. And that's fact. And that's pitiful. Now, when you think about what could be done about it, and I'm writing that in the booklet about crime can be stopped, here's how, about what ought to be done about the teaching profession. There are ten lawyers to every engineer in the United States. There is something like one lawyer for every 117 Americans. In Japan, the exact mirror image is true. There are ten engineers for every lawyer. We are a litigious society. And because youngsters who look at driving BMWs and having a home in the country and a big, beautiful palatial estate and this and that, I played golf not long ago with a young guy who's probably in his mid-30s. He is a pharmaceutical salesman, and he is building a brand new 6,000-square-foot home over at Holly Tree in one of the most exclusive districts in Tyler and drives an imported German, uh, either a Mercedes or a BMW or something. Very expensive, maybe $50,000 car. Younger than my youngest son, I would imagine. But it's just unbelievable. So that's where people are looking. They're looking not at the calling of teaching, which is the noblest of professions. They're looking at the quick buck. Where can I make the most money? Where can I get what I want? So I think I'll become a lawyer, and then I can teach everybody in the neighborhood. The minute the bus crashes into the street corner, light, will you, all you people jump on board and grab your neck, and then come to me, and I'll help you make about a you know, $1,500,000 settlement against the bus company, against Michelin Tires, against the police department, against the city, against the state and the county. If you want to find out about some of those litigious settlements, go look at what has happened to uh, the light aircraft industry. You know that actually, if you want to buy a Beechcraft Baron today, which is a twin-engine pressurized, fairly fast, 240-knot kind of an airplane made by Beechcraft, they're going to have to tack on an additional $40,000 to the price just because they've got to pay that for their insurance policy. Because lawyers have gotten such settlements, and instead of pilot error, some pilot simply drives his airplane into a cloud filled with rocks, meaning a mountaintop he didn't see. And then he and his passengers are dead, and somebody sues, not just the dumb pilot that killed himself and all the rest of them, he sues Beechcraft. And the courts allow that. 
And so now the manufacturers of every kind of piece of equipment you can buy, I guess from the home pool heating equipment to your automobile to whatever, have got to add on and tack on protection against all of these gigantic insurance premiums. And insurance investigators and adjusters, by the way, know that about 90% of all fires in the United States are fraud. But they are arson, and they are deliberately set. Now, I could go on in this vein, and I don't mean to do that, but let's get back to what it says here. They which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of your paths. The Eternal stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Eternal will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, for you've eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. We know about Keating. I can go to one of the most fabulous hotels that I have ever laid eyes on. Way too expensive for me to ever stay there. Out in Scottsdale, Arizona. My wife and I went out there. It's called the Phoenician. Treat yourself to a breakfast. Be prepared to pay three kinds of prices, but at least enjoy one meal there if you want for a few minutes of your life to step into a world that is so fabulous you can't even begin to imagine. There must be seven levels of gardens and falls and all kinds of ducks and birds around, and I mean in the, the, the palms, you know, just unbelievable fl flowers and trees and the most gorgeous hotel, all the pictures, gold-plated, huge, big, expensive urns, solid marble, inlaid, beautiful terrazzo and marble columns. And I think it's like $250, $300 a night for even a small room or whatever. No way I could ever stay there. Keating built it with a lot of poor people's money. Keating and guys of his ilk in these SNLs who were playing fast and loose with little investors who got a few hundred dollars or a thousand or two or three or an old couple that put their nest egg in an SNL trying to earn 7.8% or something to live on the, on the interest and had everything wiped out. How many times have you seen a camera with a microphone in front of an elderly lady just blubbering? Poor dear's heart is broken. I don't know what I'm going to do. My entire life savings is gone. And you sit there and cry with her on television. Who did it? Some jackass like Keating, so he can have a fabulous house. He doesn't care about the poor. And this happens straight across the board. We're not talking about one man. I mean, he's just one man, and that's the top of the iceberg. But this is done all the time. My former, and I won't get into this in detail, but I don't believe it, but my former banker, from whom I arranged loans over a span of about 20-some years, I bought my original old B-Model 310 through him and paid off the note in several years. I bought a P-Model 310, paid off that note. I paid off my automobiles. He was my banker. He was the banker for this work for the first few several years, and he quit at the bank where he worked and went off into another town to set up a bank. And the other day, he had to check into state prison where he's going to spend about four years of who knows what kind of a sentence because he got involved in the same kind of thing that he made out false statements. He made out a false personal income statement to borrow far more than he should have borrowed legally. But they caught up with him. The man's a crook. But he was our banker. He was the one to decide whether or not we were correct and upstanding, whether or not we could borrow money. He was a crook. Unbelievable, isn't it? It's the world we live in. It just, it's just out there. You know, I, I used to think, I don't think that way when I'm driving over here. When I was in L.A. and I'd drive down the freeway, I'd say, one, two, and I'd get number 12. Well, that one has a gun. One, two, and then 12, that one has a gun. Every 12th car had a gun. Now it's about every third. About every third car on the L.A. freeway is going by. It's got a gun inside of it. You have to be careful. You have to uh, be alert in this society in which you live. What mean ye, verse 15, that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, says the eternal God of hosts. Moreover, the eternal says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks. Now, you know, maybe that's because they've got to walk on high-heeled shoes. I don't know. Uh, maybe it does throw the pelvis forward and the neck out. Uh, I don't know. Some people have opined that it's because a queer king, and he's the one that started it, women, women didn't invent high-heeled shoes. Women that wear high-heeled shoes are imitating a queer king from ancient Spain. He was queer, and he decided to clump around high-heeled high, -wheel, high uh, shoes. He invented them, and everybody else tried to mimic the king. Look it up. Prove it. You know, do some research. It's fact. Because they are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks. Now, if you've ever seen a style show, no woman in her right mind walks that way. 
But there were women I saw this morning with cowboy outfits, with hats that came way out to there, and boots and sequins and diamond-shaped spots where their navel was sticking out, you know, and all kinds of weird-looking get-ups. If you'd see somebody coming by down the street dressed like that, you'd say, ah, and turn around and just run as fast as you could. It'd just scare you half out of your wits. You don't see people like that in general society. You step back in awe and say, where are the men in white? Get the big net. Carry her away. It's a witch. But there they are, you know. I don't want to mimic that walk because somebody might have a video camera on me. Somebody does have a video camera on me. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and some men have been known to mince, and making a tinkling with their feet. Now, some of them claim that they, you know, used to wear bells. Nobody ever does that anymore. But I remember it in high school. I remember it since. I remember women putting little bells on their shoes. Therefore, the Eternal will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Eternal will make them naked. They want to they walk around bottomless. There was a big deal here some time ago about some gal that was selling hot dogs down on the beach in Florida, and she was wearing nothing but a little bitty string, and uh, maybe two Band-Aids and a string. I don't know what she was wearing. She wasn't covered very thoroughly, let's put it that way. And she was showing just about all there was to show. And, of course, the TV cameras were over there full time. You know, I mean, that's news. Let's get on this. We've got to show the public this. Just because it floats by in the gutter doesn't mean Mrs. McGillicuddy wants to investigate it and see if there's anything that is edible in it. But we think the stomachs ought to be, you know, not opaque, but uh, see-through. So the media has the idea, if it happens, I want to show it to you. And that means that if there's an operation, I want to show you the cut. I don't want to tell you somebody was operated upon and just show you a doctor wearing something. I want to zero in, show you that heart beating in there, and I've seen it, seen it on TV. It gets to where you've got to have a barf bucket right near your chair watching television because you might not make it to the bathroom. Now, I know that's putting it crudely, but... In that day, the Eternal will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet, and their calls, and that means caps, the old French word, kale, and their round tires like the moon, the chains, the bracelets, the mufflers, the bonnets, the ornaments of the legs, the headbands, the tablets, the earrings, nose and ring jewel, rings and nose jewels, just about everything. You know, nowadays they've got three and four holes poked in their ears. When I was over in Kenya, you'd see Indians, at East Asian Indians I'm talking about, wearing a great big five-carat diamond right in their nose. And uh, there's nothing pretty about a lot of those Indian women's noses, but they wanted to call attention to it for some reason. And there are those that actually will drill a hole in their tooth and put a diamond in their tooth and screw it in from the rear. Walk around, smile, and you get a diamond in your face. But any place, you know, some societies used to think that they could stretch their lips out about that big and put a big piece of wood in it. And that looked beautiful. They couldn't eat. They couldn't talk. Except when it got hot, one of them sit next to the other one and said, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle pepper, now you fan me for a while. If they got real, real warm, you know, and they had to... We're talking here about Ubangis. But they still do that in some societies. And they, anything that a man can do, I mean, some of them will stretch their earlobes out to here. You ever seen that? Stretch the earlobes down about that far, and they think that's beautiful in some societies. Some of them make pimples all over their face. Teenagers do that just by eating Snicker bars. But in some societies, they do that on purpose. So you look at all of this and you ask yourself, do you see people walking around in the mall in Tyler wearing this kind of stuff? Well, sure you do. The glasses, the fine linen, the hoods, the veils. It shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there should be stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girdling of sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. Doesn't God like beauty? Well, of course he does. You can look at contrasting scriptures where it talks about Israel being a little baby girl that God took, and she grew into a beautiful young woman, and it says, I decked thee, and it talks about badger skin, and all kinds of furs, and fabulous linen, and all kinds of jewelry, and you were grown up, and your beauty was of great renown, and God decked her, and it's talking about Israel by analogy, because in the covenant relationship, God says, thou becamest mine, and he says, I was an husband unto them, but my covenant they break. And so... This is not because God is against any kind of well-coiffed hair or a certain modicum of jewelry or something. It has to do with the underlying motive. It has to do with the attitude of heart. It has to do with harlotry 
and with provocativeness and with sexual licentiousness and with not measuring up to the role of wife, homekeeper, and mother. It has nothing to do with God being against women but for men, and that's not what I'm here to talk about today at all, but certainly this has got to be taken at face value. He says in verse 25, Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate, talking about the nation, shall sit upon the ground. I want to turn now to Exodus, the 20th chapter. We're going to take a quick look at the Ten Commandments. Actually, all of the Ten Commandments bear indirectly upon the family, because the family is that basic unit of all society. But there are several of them that zero in specifically on the family and the marriage relationship, don't they? Certainly the one that talks about God as being the only God and being the father of all of mankind does. But notice when it gets to the command about father and mother, the fifth commandment, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God giveth thee. Long life. But not only that, there was another veiled threat that is contained in this scripture, because each one of these commandments is a law, an absolute, divinely revealed law. And to break them is sin, and the wages of sin is death. Any parent who allows a child to dishonor a parent is allowing a child to commit sin, is allowing a child to commit a sin that is worthy of death. I've delivered many, many sermons and written a full book and did my entire master's thesis about that thick on the subject of child psychology and child training, and waded through not only everything the Bible says about it, but many, many dozens of books. I'd bring them home eight at a time. Back during the days when Dr. Spock and his ilk were advocating child psychology, who began to look at human attitudes such as rage and anger, vindictiveness and resentment and so on as having in intrinsic value. And they would write chapters of books like, it is if you had a bag full of marbles, and the marbles are labeled rage, and you take some marbles out and you put them over here. Now you have less marbles in the bag, so there is less rage there. And they would actually give this ridiculous, ludicrous, little bit of, of idiotic reasoning, which is not logical at all, to parents in the guise of saying, now, if your child is having a screaming tantrum, and throws himself or herself on the floor and says, I want to kill you, Mom! Then what you do is you quietly and patiently practice constructive ignoring. You just go on to do, 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 cooking, and I want to kill you! Ah, you down there, you know, just ignore. I've seen them doing that in restaurants. Two human beings talking, little kids screaming. They're pretending, just talking over this baby, kicking and screaming like they don't hear it. They go deaf in one ear when the kid is screaming. Now, if that doesn't work, he said, what you might want to do is to go into the bedroom and get a pillowcase that's old and worn out, and then tie a knot around it and hang it from a rafter in a garage, and paint a face on it and label it Mom, and then put the kid in the garage and hand him a baseball bat, and say, and I'm talking the truth, God knows, I read this in a book that advocated parents do this, let the kid beat the stuffing out of that pillow and that way he will exhaust himself and he won't have any more of that anger. The idiot that wrote that book doesn't know that we are creatures of habit and that we are building and ingraining inside of ourselves habits, and what they're doing is teaching a child to be habitually violent and to take out his rage by a violent act of swinging a bat. I don't know if any mother that ever practiced that is still alive today or not, or a cripple or walking around with both kneecaps broken. But Dr. Spock should have had somebody practice a little bit on him. You know, it took him about 30 years to admit he was wrong. 30 years later, we got about 16,797,000 juvenile delinquents running around the country with a Spock mark showing. And Dr. Spock comes on television and said, I, I goofed. I made an error. I was wrong back then. How do you repent for something that enormous? I really, I really don't know. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God gives you. You shall not kill. Well, homicide is literally homicide. It's moved into the home. 
About 50% of all murder is someone who knows somebody, and a great deal of that is within the family. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That has to do, as Christ said, with even the mental aspect of it, the temptation aspect of it. A man who has married a woman has married a woman who is not meant to compete with the winners of beauty contests, some of the most beautiful women on the face of the earth who are willing to take all their clothes off and have photographs taken of the full frontal view in lewd poses like they were getting ready to make love in marriage and have it in the centerfold in the magazine. The wives and mothers of America were not meant to compete with that kind of pornographic garbage. And men and boys were never intended to see that kind of thing. How do you suppose it was possible that Jacob, working for all those years, didn't know until the next morning that Laban had given him the wrong woman? Think about it for a little while. Now, I'm not saying that all the, all of the codes of, of that time were exactly perfect and so on. But what's the first thing young people want to know about each other today? It's the exact opposite of where it ought to be. There is no such thing. It is utterly impossible for you to ever, I don't care whether you're 80 or 8, to fall in love. Because a fall is an accident. And love is not an accident. Love is an outgoing mutual concern. But what if courtship were to replace all of these instant sleep-around, live-in arrangements where the very first thing people want to know about each other is, are we good in bed? And that's what they seek to find out. In the earliest days in high school, if it doesn't hurt anybody, do it. That's what everybody hears. It's a din. It's a cacophony of sound. It's just a constant, constant, repetitive kind of a din that they hear from every conceivable source entertainment, movies, TV, in school. And in school there is a subculture. There's the culture of the classroom, there's the culture of the family, but there's the subculture of the lockers, the hallway, and the, uh, the restrooms. There's the subculture of the kids walking to and from. There's the subculture of the conversation on the school bus. And what the kids learn from each other and the peer pressure that is going on to be involved in all these things, smoking, drugs, alcohol, and sex. And it is there all the time. And for these decades, like a little bitty voice in the wilderness, I'm doing hundreds and hundreds of radio programs, hundreds of television programs, sending out millions of booklets. My father and I used to say, you know, in Ambassador College, we've had 127 marriages. We've been going now for all of these years. We have not had one divorce. But you know, the minute the church started to fragment, and the minute some ministers left in 1974, all of that was off. All of it just went. And the minute that the church itself lost its cohesiveness, and old-timers will know what I'm talking about, people began to divorce. In church, I remember one couple that I had known for years that divorced in the Pasadena congregation, remarried, and were allowed to come right back in and sit in the congregation, where for dozens of years we had almost ranted and railed against divorce and said what a great crime and a great sin it was. And it was absolutely something that never should be allowed. Now, there is a reason for divorce that is given in the Bible, several reasons, actually, under the broad Greek meaning of the word porneia that has to do with any kind of sexual infidelity or perversion. A woman marries a guy and finds out later on that he's queer. Uh, she has a right to get rid of the idiot, the, uh, pardon me, the, the queer. Uh, she has a right to dump him. That's all there is to it. And there are certain other things that we can say that, uh, you know, a woman is not required to stay with a man that beats her half to death every Tuesday at 9 o'clock just for the fun of it. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You can take that one commandment and you can apply it to our nation and you can say, what if Almighty God with the kingdom of God in place were enforcing this command? What would it do to art, to literature, to television, to radio, to all entertainment, what would it do to the motion picture industry? What would it do to modern dating? What would it do to family relations? For many, many years in Ambassador College, I taught a class called Family Relations that included dating and preparation for marriage. And continually, I would take a survey when the new students would come to class, about a hundred of them, and I would describe the going way of things during those days in the late 50s and all through the 60s. And I would talk about necking and, uh, you know, the lover's lane and what happens after the prom and a football game in the backseat of a car and so on. 
And the first toy a lot of parents give a kid is a mobile bedroom called a car. And I would talk about when it came time to get married. And so it was a mixed class. And I would ask all the fellows, I would say, now how many of you fellows want to marry a girl who is, was just for a little while a practicing prostitute, but she, you know, she repented of that and she's not a whore anymore at all, and uh, so on. And you, you, you don't find out, how, how many of you want to marry a woman who was a prostitute? Not a hand goes up. Well, how many of you want to marry a woman who's only been to bed with about 16 guys? Not a hand goes up. How about only one guy, maybe your best friend? She's only been to bed, she went steady with him, lived with him for a year and a half or two, but she's only had experience with one man. Not a hand goes up. They're sitting on their hands. I say, look around, girls. You're seeing the truth right now. You're coming face to face with the truth. Then I'd try it out on the boys, the girls. I'd say the same thing. How many of you girls want to marry a boy that has only been to bed with 18 women? Only had two cases of gonorrhea and had it cleared up both times by penicillin. How many of you want to marry, you know, and I'd describe all this, not a hand would go up. So they were all saying, when it comes marrying time, I may want to do this and that and the other thing and run around and, quote, sow my wild oats, end quote. But when it comes marrying time, I want to marry Prince Charming or Little Miss Clean. I want to marry that precious girl or the precious boy that I've dreamed about all my life. But I said, you're not being fair. Because if that's what you want, then that's the way you ought to keep yourself for the girl or the boy of your dreams. And that's the way you ought to be when you walk down the aisle and say, I do. So I advocated becoming best friends. I advocated dating. I advocated dating with the parents present. I advocated fishing and hunting and hiking. I advocated dating for so long you had a chance to see the other party sick, in bed with a fever, not feeling good. I advocated getting to know one another intellectually, socially, spiritually, and in every other way, because I know that Almighty God has so built and designed human beings that given any kind of a mutual attraction, the sexual aspect of marriage will take beautiful care of itself once all those other things are in place. If you learn to love someone and you grow to love them so that you want to share with them, when you see something beautiful, you can't wait to tell them and exclaim about how beautiful it is. You learn loyalty toward them. You learn a feeling of protectiveness toward them. You want to be with them, not selfishly, but because when you're with them, you feel like a whole person. When you will get all of these things in place and you find out this other person, male or female, is your very best, most loyal, staunch friend, then you may be in love and it may last. And that's the time when you got your financial feet on the ground, you've already got your career started, you're able to provide a home, you say, will you marry me? Isn't that old-fashioned? Isn't that terrible? Isn't that out of date? And yet, you know, if it could be put in place, and it will be in God's kingdom, it will be imposed upon mankind in God's kingdom. We would eradicate crime. Crime would be a thing of the past if the family unit were the kind of family unit that Almighty God intends. It says, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor covet your neighbor's wife. That's talking about two families living side by side, next door. Two of them working, one of them coveting, desiring what the other has, and including his wife or his servant, his employees, his maidservant, or his ox, or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor. And so, so many of the commandments actually have to do with the family. Now, the first assault on the family, of course, is divorce. Divorce is rampant in our country. My own father divorced. The woman that he was telling the whole church was his chosen, that God had sent to replace my mother, that couldn't go with him on those trips, those grueling trips and so on. But later on, when he found out what she was, and he told my sister Dorothy, when she said, well, Dad, why don't you divorce her? He said, I'm fixing it where she'll divorce me, meaning that he was changing makeup because he thought that when he changed makeup, she would bow her back and she wouldn't go along with it, and that would cause her to divorce him. Well, she fooled him. She just washed it off and came to church anyway. And she wasn't going to divorce him, so she forced him, she's already called his hand, and he ended up pursuing the divorce. Now, that proved to me that doctrine can become something that is purely political. 
And I can document that for you, by the way. That's not just a little bit of gossip I'm throwing out here. That is exactly how the change in the makeup doctrine came about. But anyway, whether you believe that or not, it doesn't matter to me. I know it's true. God knows it's true. And my sister knows it's true. My wife knows it's true. And those who were there and part of it know that it's true. Divorce is the result of incredible selfishness, of resentment, of anger, of a lack of commitment, a lack of preparation, a lack of education, a lack of godly qualities of forgiveness, and of a deep understanding and of an outgoing concern. Instead, it is often the result, first of all, of infidelity. It is the result, oftentimes, of simple resentment and anger over money. It's the result of lust for another person. It's a result of boredom because of all these other things I've talked about, where the light has gone out and where everything that was supposed to be beautiful and wonderful is now dull and routine. What if it were, in our society, a crime to divorce? It is a crime in God's Word, but there are certain very horrible situations under which God says it's allowable. And those are given in the Word of God, the Bible, where a woman or a man might have the option. What if it were a crime to divorce, and not so easy as the courts make it? What if everyone then decided they were not going to risk the devastation that divorce causes, not all the psychological, emotional, spiritual, mental trauma and agony, tears, buckets of tears, terrible financial problem of wrenching aside mutual property and deciding who gets what, crying little kids, who's going to live where, all this stuff. Not all those things that are present anyway, but to actually be slammed in jail for divorcing, except under certain very stringent conditions. I think people would then try to prepare. How many high schools and colleges have the kind of courses we taught where they actual, actually teach courses that have to do with dating, how to select a mate, how to prepare for marriage? And, of course, unless you go to a vocational school or some university like some of the state universities who do have home economics, but you were to ask, if you were to ask 100 young women, what are you going to do in life? I'm not sure even one out of 100 of them would step up and say with a bright, cheery smile, I'm going to be a homemaker and a mother. I'm preparing to be a wife and a mother. Oh, I'm going to be an engineer, doctor, lawyer, airlines pilot. I'm going in the service, designer, decorator. You know, they're going to be a, a career lady. They're going to have their career. And that's what they're studying for. They're going to be an executive. Uh, I'm going to own a business. I'm going to be an executive secretary. That's even a low uh, secretary. Then you're working under a man, probably. I'm going to lead a women's movement, whatever it is. But, I mean, it's something other than, as I look at the magazine covers, next time you go to the 7-Eleven store, you go to a big bookstore, look at all the women's magazines, and there are about 120 of them. And it's not the same girl, even though from a distance you think it is. But it's a woman with what they think is a provocative look, and a lot of them are actually having injections in their mouth. I saw that that was happening. I couldn't believe it. So they look like that all the time, you know. I, I don't know what that is. I guess that means that if, if you want to, uh, never mind, I'll just... But anyway, uh, why, why a woman would have silicone or something injected in her, in her lips to make them look, you know, like you could unstop the bathroom with it or something, it's just ridiculous. But, <laughs> but anyway, that's supposed to look sexy. So the next time, I'm, this is just a thing that I do. I just commonly do it. I go into the store, I look. There are all those women. We're going through the airport. My wife and I travel on airlines an awful lot. We go through the airport, and there are the magazines. We'll say, I think I want to get a new book for this trip. We'll go in and try to find a book that's decent to read. Here are all these women on the front pages, you know, with everything hanging out, cleavage all the way to the navel, all just gorgeous women, all of them beautiful women. And I'm saying to her, so she gets tired of it, look at all those little mothers. Look at all the homebodies there. Oh, they're learning how to cook broccoli. Look at all the little mothers. They're practicing to be mothers and wives and grandmothers and... And that's what they have on their mind, and that's what this magazine is all about. And it talks about your sex life, and the word sex is on almost every cover of every magazine you can buy. Cosmopolitan used to be a fairly good magazine, now it's almost pornography, even in the advertisement section. I look at Cosmopolitan in my dentist's office on an occasion. If I wore a hairpiece, it would go straight off the top of my head. It's unbelievable. So I, I can't go all the way through all of this, but I wish I could. Courtship, dating, shared experiences, mutual intellectual, social, and spiritual tastes. Get to know what you like and what you don't like. Become best friends. Find that you're loyal and protective and wanting to share. 
and the physical attraction will take care of itself. If that, if divorce were so agonizingly difficult, if it were a crime punishable by huge fines and a prison sentence, except under certain provable stringent conditions like adultery or homosexuality, etc., or wife beating, you see what I'm saying? But just divorce for the sake of, well, I just don't love him anymore kind of stuff. If it were difficult in society, then people would do what I'm talking about. They'd be so exceedingly careful in preparing to marry and in selecting a mate that their odds of staying together would be hundreds of percentage points above what they are today. And I believe that that is actually at the root cause of a great deal of this. Now, here's one of the scriptures that I don't dare preach, so I'm going to preach it anyway, over in Titus, the second chapter. See, if I get on television and preach a lot of this, I'm going to get a lot of death threats. So I'll just do this to the tape program in the local church, because I get enough death threats as it is. Somebody called, not, I guess it's been quite a while ago now, and said, there's a bomb and Garner Ted's going to die. Well, they're right. I am going to die, but not by their bomb. And uh, because God won't allow that, I'm sure. All right. In Titus, the second chapter, Paul is telling Titus, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Maybe Titus got himself killed. I don't know that there's any proof of that. That the aged men be sober. So I've got to quit bringing as much levity into my sermons now that I'm getting aged, I guess. Grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becoming holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste. That means keeping that commandment we read about. Keepers at home, that doesn't mean that under certain circumstances, women that have jobs shouldn't have those jobs. They've got to have a job or they'd starve. But they've still got a home. They can do both. They can still keep the home. But ideally, and in the millennium it's going to be that way because God is going to force civilization to go back to an agrarian society, and people are going to live close to the land, and they're going to have fruit trees, they're going to have cattle, and kids are going to learn that cow milk comes out of cows, not out of a plastic carton, and they're going to learn about the cycles in nature, and you're going to see three and four and five generations sitting around in an evening playing on a fiddle somebody great-grandpa made with his own hands, and you're going to see families gathered together in a farm-like setting, and it's going to be more like the American farm in the 30s and 40s used to be. Now, it wasn't ideal then, but you know what I'm saying. It's going to be an agrarian society. You won't find millions of people living in asphalt and concrete jungles all thrown together in different ghettos and resenting and just hating one another, living in the glaring contrast of terrible poverty pockets and what a lot of them used to call Jew canoes, that's their term for a Cadillac, going by in streams on the freeway. You're not going to see all that lust and resentment because you won't see people that are aware of that. Now think just for one minute, just make one statement, you think about this. What if there hadn't been any television when Rodney King was beaten? Now he shouldn't have been beaten, and the cops that did it should be beaten, and it was a crime and a rotten sin. I'm just saying, what if... You think about what the media and instant telecommunication has done to our society in entertainment, and you think about it in every other way. If some little thing happens over there the news media thinks is important, they're going to hear about it way over yonder, as they say. They're going to hear about it all over the world. Saddam Hussein watched Rodney King being beaten. See, they watch CNN over there. Our enemies watch us wash our filthy linen in public, and nobody says... Let's not portray that image of America abroad. That they may teach the young women to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, and so on. It is blasphemy against the word of God for so many in society to act as they are today that grinds away against the home. I want to conclude by quickly going to Zechariah, the eighth chapter. This is a little bit of a picture. I said that I can talk about some things involving society, 
about the way it will be eventually in the kingdom of God, and that is kind of esoteric and futuristic and eschatological, and so I can't get in too much trouble. If I start saying it's the way it ought to be now, if I were to go on television and preach that most women ought to be homekeepers, I'd lose so many thousands of women off our mailing list, it'd be unbelievable. So you've got to be a little bit politically uh, smart, wise as a serpent, and harmless as a dove, or you can wreck the work. You know, if I wanted to just preach everything that is in the Word of God as powerfully as I feel about it personally, I could get myself thrown off all of our stations. I was thrown off WGN because I took issue with homosexuality, and the program director was a queer. He's not a closet queen. He came out of the closet a long time ago. So there we are. I don't want to do that anymore. But I'm not going to slack off on homosexuality. I'm just not going to go back on WGN. Uh, Zechariah, the eighth chapter, the word of the Eternal of Hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus says the Eternal, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Eternal of Hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, but not the dirty, filthy, grungy streets of today's Jerusalem, which he calls Sodom and Egypt. It'll be the new city we're talking about, and those streets will be wide and verdant and green, and it will be a city that will look like a collection of small villages with growing things and cattle and so on. It won't be playing in a street and dodging automobiles, I'll guarantee you. That's not what this is saying. It was written at a time when the streets of Jerusalem were beautiful. It is written projecting a time forward when they will be beautiful again, more so than ever before will dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age, because longevity will be uh, very much uh, ubiquitous. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes that a remnant of these people in those days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, says the Eternal of hosts. Behold, I will save my people from the east country, and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. If the family in this country of ours were truly a Christian home, if it were a solid unit with the father in his place as provider, protector, and breadwinner, and mother in her place as the mother of the children and the homekeeper, and if the children were taught the solid Christian values of the homes that I talked about, yes, many churches that don't know the truth of God, but they know the truth about the family. And that includes Mormons and Baptists. And that includes Seventh-day Adventists and Church of Christ. It includes Pentecostal. It includes a lot of churches who know about the family and who emphasize that part of the Bible, the Word of God. I don't believe those youngsters in Watts in East or South Central Los Angeles who were killing and burning came from church-going Christian homes and families. They are a part of the offspring of the broken homes, the illegitimacy, the divorces, those that have been put out in the streets by uncaring, thoughtless mothers that have not provided the kind of a home environment they should have. If the American home and family could be a solid, godly unit, practically every evil we know of in society would disappear.